I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. I'm dedicating this class in memory of my brother, my dear brother, for those of you who knew him. Uh, I know Susan knew him well. And uh, for those of you who didn't know him, but you may not think you knew him, but there are a lot of people who came to the Shiva and when they saw the picture of him, they said, oh my goodness, I know him. And that's because he was ubiquitous, as my younger brother Joel said in his eulogy. He, uh, he, his funeral was packed on a Monday afternoon at one o'clock, even though he never married or had any children. Uh, I just found, my husband just found something I wrote a while ago about him that I'll just share with you, but there's so much to say about him. Um, but he, he worked for Chocolate Charm and he was, uh, he delivered chocolate for them. And so a lot of people, when they saw his face at the uh, Shiva said, oh my goodness, I know him because he was at your door. And as my brother said at the funeral, once Michael had one foot in the door, it wasn't long until he had he had a place in your heart because he was extremely lovable and charming and a very halig neshama. I didn't know that as a kid growing up underneath him. For me, it was um, a challenge because um, he had a lot of challenges of his own. And uh, the day today in terms of the Omer is Gevura. It's the last day of Gevura. And when I think about my brother, he personifies Gevura because the way that I described him after he died is that I feel like his whole life, he was always climbing up the hill. The way that, you know, we're climbing now with the Omer count between Pesach and Shavuot, Michael's whole life was an uphill climb, but he did it with dignity and a, and a smile on his face and with the desire to give to others. I wrote something here. I bought me some things from different people. Shoshana Zolti wrote me this morning. She was a dear friend of his. He was uh, friends with so many people. When I moved to Toronto, Michael announced to me, or years before that I'm having his 50th birthday party in my house. And, you know, he liked to tell you the same thing over and over again. So I'd say, you know, tell me three weeks before. I don't need to know two years before. But anyway, the point is that this party was overflowing with people from the firmest of the firm to the richest of the rich to his grade three teacher from St. Catherine's who came in specially to his friend from grade five, Malcolm Puffer, who was his... Um, co-assistant at the muscular dystrophy carnivals that we used to have in our backyard every year. Michael used to raise an incredible amount of money for this organization. With all of his handicaps and challenges, he was actually number one salesman of Fuller Brush products in Canada at one point in his life. So let me just read you a little bit. It is too strange to be true, but it is true. I guess I wrote this right after he died. My brother Michael is no longer on this world. He has gone to another place, the Olam HaEmet, the place where only truth exists. This is Olam HaFuch, where the great people here may really be nothing important upstairs. And the small and ignored people here 
are often the great ones. I think my brother Michael is well recognized for his accomplishments upstairs. In this world, my brother would have been called a nebach. No job, no wife, no children. But he had a family and a lot of friends. His friendships covered the spectrum of all types of people. Anyone who treated him with a modicum of kindness became his friend forever. In the next world, perhaps he is a front row seat because he lived his life to its fullest. He accomplished what he was able to accomplish. He made people better. You knew you were, you, where you were holding by the way you treated Michael. If you were impatient, rude, and arrogant, that would come out whenever Michael was around. If you had respect for every human being and had time and patience, Michael was the most pleasant person to be around. He had a very difficult childhood. He was teased mercilessly, but he persevered and achieved so much, so much more than so many higher functioning folk. Life was an uphill climb, but he didn't expect it to be any different. The last image of my brother, Michael, is of him pulling himself up on a stop sign as he was dying, determined to keep moving. It remains for me the symbol of Michael's approach to life. Every day he climbed in the rain, sleet, snow, and a hail of life, in the sweltering heat, in allergy season, with a rod in his back that he had put in there as a child because of scoliosis. He moved slowly but steadily wherever he went. And he loved so deeply anyone who was good to him. In the firm community, he found so many who were good, willing to do a mitzvah, enriched by reaching out to him, realizing how much he gave them in the end. I could go on and on. I could write a book about Michael. We could make a movie about Michael. It's, uh, there's many, many layers to my brother. Even the way he died, just to share with you, he was actually on his way to my house on Shabbos. He was turning the corner off of Bathurst Street uh, where the school, where Viewmount Shul is, Ace Chaim. And he was running to be part of a seum that my husband was making, the end of having learned a certain part of Torah, which had taken my husband six years. It was also, believe it or not, we had all these people in our house because we had just announced the engagement of our son to some, to, you know, to, to the neighbors and our friends who were there for the seum. And Michael hadn't arrived yet. I told him it was at two o'clock. Anyway, with all of the commotion in the house and the simcha, and my husband was literally saying the prayer that you say after a seum, yiskadalvi yiskadash, and two guys ran into the house breathless. And they were standing in front of my husband waiting for him to finish saying this Kaddish, which actually the only other time you say that particular Kaddish is at a funeral, ironically. And um, I'm only telling the story because it's so dramatic. But anyway, um, so they're waiting for him to finish and I didn't notice them because I was busy talking to all my girlfriends about the shit up and about the color and everything else. And I remember even one of my friends said, who are those guys? And I said, I don't know. Anyway, my husband went running out 
and they had come to tell him that my brother had died literally around the corner on his way over. And my husband, God bless him, went to try to find my younger brother so that he wouldn't have to tell me. And my brother was out, so my husband came back, and I was still outside with all of our guests and saying goodbye and very excited and in a very happy mood. And, um, and he told me the news. And I remember my daughters grabbing my hands, and we literally just walked to the first corner and looked down the street, and there was the ambulance. Now, the amazing thing was that Michael had slept over that Shabbat. He was with us. It was the week after Pesach. All of my kids were still with us from Israel and wherever they lived. And the last act that Michael did, which to me just personified him again in terms of this kavura, was that he was going up to bed and there was a box of Kleenex on the stairs going up the stairs. And I saw him going down to pick up the Kleenex box. Now for Michael to pick it up, it meant that he had to go down on one knee, then on the other knee, pick it up because of the, the rod in his back. And then, so I said to him, Mike, what are you doing? And he said, I'm picking up the Kleenex box. And I just thought to myself how ironic it was because of course the rest of us had all walked by it, you know, 600 times, all, all Shabbos long, but who's the one that takes the time to pick it up and take it upstairs? Anyway, the last thing he did for me was to allow me to do a last chesed for him. As he was going up the stairs, he said to me, and he had a real childlike quality about him. He said, would you uh, put out a bowl of cereal and a banana for me for breakfast tomorrow? So we always had this altercation. I would say, Michael, you don't need breakfast. You had a huge dinner and you know he struggled with his weight and you're gonna have a huge lunch. Okay, no religious people eat breakfast. Okay, we don't eat breakfast. <laughs> so Michael said, oh, come on, Deb, please. Anyway, the next morning I woke up, he was still in bed. I was going to shul. I was having a fight with my Yetzer Hara, Yetzer Tov. And I decided, okay. And I put out a bowl of cereal and the banana and I went to shul. And of course, when I came home, he was very, very neat. Everything was all cleaned up. And I would never, ever see him again. Although it was incredible because it happened on Shabbat, it was as if we had a camera on him the entire Shabbos because people who came would say, oh, I saw Michael walking down the street and he said hi to me. Oh, he shook hands with me in shul oh, well, he was at our house for lunch, whatever. Just, it was like we had a camera on every single move he did. He actually was at someone's home for lunch and there was a very poor woman there from Israel. And the hostess said to Michael, to this woman, she said, you know, Michael's a Kohen. He could give you a blessing. So my brother said, what do you want? And she said, I wanna be rich. So he, whatever. So he said, okay. I said, if Michael had been normal, like feeling good, he was already feeling not so well. He would have said, okay, but as long as I get a cut, you know, um, he was a real businessman. As kids, he had a library in his room 
we had to take out and borrow books. He had stampers in every back of every book. And we had to pay fines if we brought them back late. So he was always making money. And uh, anyway, his, the Shama should be a blessing for all of us. He should continue to be a Meili Shosha for all of us. He was mumish, a very, very pure soul. And uh, anyway, Mike, thank you that I was blessed to have you as a brother. Okay, so we're continuing with Shmona Esrei, and we're actually continuing with the last part, right? Shmona Esrei, we said, is divided. Thank you for listening, by the way, and thank you. Yes, amen, my brothers, Neshama Shavav and Aliyah. Yeah, amen. I, like I said, I could write a book and in terms of the chesed that he would do that nobody knew about until the Shiva came, even though as a child, we used to call him aged 007, because he would never tell you where he was going and what he was doing. Meanwhile, I'll just tell you one more story. Sadly, and you know, I say about my brother and my parents, it was like a ballet in three acts because my mother who was sitting Shiva for my brother actually had four broken ribs at the time, which she attributed to hitting the tennis ball too hard. Not knowing that at the end of the Shiva when my sister took her to sports medicine, they said to her, Mrs. Monson, this is not from playing tennis. You have four broken ribs, which ended up being from metastasized breast cancer into the bones. Now, why am I telling you this? Because while they were at sports medicine, um, the uh, secretary there said, how's Michael doing? And my sister said, how do you know my brother, Michael? He wasn't one of the athletes in the family. And she said, what are you talking about? He was here all the time because he would drive people here for their doctor's appointments. And he would sit and wait for them and he would schmooze with me. He was an incredible schmoozer. So there were many, many stories like this where we had no idea what he was doing whenever he was given the car, he was shopping for people. He was playing cards with shut-ins so their wives could get out and, and go have a life and many, many other things. But anyway, he was also a very grateful person. And that's what we're up to in the Shimona Esrei. The Shimona Esrei is divided into three parts. We said the beginning is praise, where we talk about who we're talking to, where we understand who it is that we're addressing. The next part is request. Once we know who we're talking to, right? The one who can give us everything, the one on who we rely, the one on who we have nothing, including our very lives, without his um, will behind it. Then we can ask. And we ask for spiritual brachas, and we ask for material brachas, and we ask for the ultimate bracha, which is that Hashem should reveal himself in the world, and that Mashiach should come, and that we should return to Yerushalayim and that the temple should be rebuilt and that we should be out of exile, not only physical exile, but an exile that we don't even realize we in, which, which is that we are exiled from ourselves, from our potential being actualized as, as Jews and, and to our fullest. Can't talk, honey, sorry. Um, and so, sorry about that. 
So, um, so after we've made all of our requests, we then end by saying thank you. So the last three blessings in the Shemona Esrei are called Hoda'a, which means thanks, from the word Toda'a. I've got my sitter here of ferns on, so I can tell her the page. For those of you who don't have a cross-scroll sitter, you don't know where we are. That's the, the bracha that begins with say, right? We just finished the Shema Kolenu. We said the word Shema stands for Shacharis, Mincha, and Arvis, right? That all day long we can be asking from God whether formally in the prayer or just in our own words, to create a connection to Hashem. It's a fantastic thing to just talk to him all day long. Hashem, I need a parking spot. Hashem, I, I'm late. I need to get to the doctors on time. And create that connection in our own words. Shema Kulina was the place where we were able to insert our own prayers. And now, sort of after this last chance of request, we're going into... The prayer of thanksgiving. Okay. So being thankful, as I've mentioned many times, is the cornerstone of Judaism, right? Without hakarat hatov, recognizing the good in your life that is bestowed upon you by God, that comes into your life through other people, you cannot be a proper Evet Hashem. We're called Yehudim. We're not called Binyamin. We're, we're, we're not called Binyanamim or, you know, any, by any other tribe. We're called, for whatever reason, after Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda. And interestingly, that word means thanks. Now, why was Yehuda so great? Because Yehuda admitted his sin. When Yehuda was caught, he said, I am guilty. Right? We know the story of Yehuda and Tamar in the Torah. If you don't, that was his greatness. And so interestingly, the word thank you and the word admitting are connected. They're from the same root. And they have, what, what is it telling us? It's telling us that to admit, to thank somebody else, to thank God takes humility. To thank others takes humility. It's something we have to be taught. When we're young, right? We talked about that, how, you know, we come into this world, Magiali, you're supposed to get me my bottle. You're supposed to change my diaper. You're supposed to do everything for me. What's the going on now? All of a sudden I have to say, thank you. You know, it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> and what it's saying is I'm admitting that you are doing something for me that perhaps I couldn't have done myself. I need you. And that takes humility and recognition, understanding that by ourselves, we are so extremely limited. Okay. And why do we not like saying thank you? Because sometimes what happens is we feel that now we owe, we're owing, right? We're in the red. Oh no, now it means that you're on top of the game. I have to like do something for you now. 
So we don't like that feeling. It makes us uneasy. We either owe another person or Hashem. Now, the difference between a, another person and Hashem is with a human being, you say thanks. And it implies that, you know, I no longer need your help. But with God, the more we receive from him, the more we recognize how utterly dependent we are on him. Not just for the special things that he gives us, the extras, but even for the simplest needs that we always take for granted. You know, and I was thinking, what are those simple needs that we take for granted that have been heightened during this pandemic? The ability to breathe, right? One of the ways that the coronavirus attacks people is they can't get a breath. Somebody was saying they knew someone who was very young who, um, who got the corona. And she said, even though she got better and she was young and strong, that not being able to catch her breath was the most panicked part of the whole thing. And I think I mentioned that story in a different class about a, a man who was on a ventilator for three months and Baruch Hashem, he got better, a true story. And when he was leaving the hospital, they gave him a bill for an incredibly exorbitant amount of money. And he started to cry. And his wife said to him, what are you crying for? Don't worry about it. The bill's been taken care of. And he said, no, I'm crying because I can't believe it costs that much money for me to breathe for three months. And it made me understand how... Um, Hashem makes me breathe every day for free, for nothing. There's no, you know, cost involved. So it was this recognition, you know, being able to smell another coronavirus symptom, not being able to smell, which means you don't get, not being able to taste your food, right? All of these simple things, all of these old new pleasures that we have to recognize are all in our lives because Hashem gives them to us. It's not a given. And the more grateful we are, the more Hashem wants to give us. That just makes sense, right? If you have five kids and you have one kid who's incredibly grateful and you have another kid who never says thanks, which one do you want to give to? Which one is it easy to give to? Which one do you just naturally want to give more to right and it's the same with us and Hashem when we say thank you when we acknowledge all the gifts from the smallest to the largest he just wants to give us more now we have to understand that Hashem needs nothing and we can never pay him back right we say that everything God gives us is a matnas khina. it's a free gift it's not tit for tat it's not okay you did this mitzvah I'm going to give you this you know First of all, mitzvahs can never be repaid in this world anyway. But the point is, is we get the good because Hashem loves to give and he loves to give us good, even when we don't deserve it, even just because he loves us, right? But when we acknowledge the good that he does for us, it's good for us because it makes us want to do more. It makes us want to be more of a giver. And it's really the secret to happiness. Because we know that people who are givers are happier people, right? We don't have to look at positive psychology and all of the studies that psychology has done. We know, 
right? The word uh, Natan is a paladrum. Paladrum, yeah, right? You read it the same way backwards and forwards. So these prayers, when we're thankful to Hashem, it makes us open our eyes and see the good. And the more we do this, the more we see. And we become connoisseurs in positive thinking. My parents were connoisseurs of positive thinking. And because of that, that's probably why my brother did so well in life. I remember my sister once took him to have his IQ tested at some point when she was trying to figure out what he had because my parents never knew what he had his whole life. He didn't talk till he was five years old. We lived in St. Catharines. They brought him to doctors in Toronto. You can imagine what it was like. But nobody knew anything in those days. It was only, I think, in his mid-40s because of my sister who decided to take it on as a project, found out that he has high-functioning Asperger's syndrome, right? Remember when Asperger's all of a sudden became like everybody, wow, Asperger's, nobody knew about it. Books were written, movies. Anyway, the point is, is when they checked his IQ and they saw how incredibly accomplished he was, they said, this is unbelievable because... He functions at a level so much higher than his IQ, but that's because my parents treated him like that. And, you know, anyway, the point is, is, and they were positive thinkers. So when you become a positive thinker, right, we say the city of happiness is found in the state of mind. When we're thankful to Hashem, we're also naturally going to be thankful to the people around us who are just shlichim. They're just messengers of Hashem. Hashem sends them to us through him. And then we'll love other people and be thankful to them for all they do for us. Rabbi Victor Miller speaks a lot about the interdependence of people. You know, what does it take to get a cup of coffee to your table every day, right? And he does a whole long thing on what, how many people are involved in your coffee. And of course, when he finishes the whole thing, he says, we haven't even talked about your mug, okay? <laughs> but the idea is, is that the world is so interdependent. We're always constantly helping each other. If you never read the book by A.J. Jacobs called Thanks a Thousand, okay? A bestseller on the New York Times. I read it a few years ago. It is a book that, that personifies this, this idea, you know, uh, it's basically called a gratitude journey. And what he did is he decided to thank every single person involved in producing his morning cup of coffee, beginning with the barista at his local shop in Manhattan. And in essence, the book basically is saying life is a team effort and it pays to thank the other players. <laughs> So the more we, we see other people in our lives as shlichim of Hashem and of those who deserve our thanks, then the more we understand that whatever Hashem sends us, even if we perceive it as bad, we understand to be grateful for it all because everything that comes our way is either just a gift or it's meant to teach us something that we need to learn. And it's also, its whole purpose is to bring us closer to Hashem. 
to be more grateful, to not take things for granted. Rabbi Hanina taught that the first three, in the first three blessings, the first three breath blessings are like this. In the first blessing, when we're praising God, we're like servants who spell out the praises of their master. That's the first thing you do as a servant. You tell the master how great he is. Not for him again, because he knows and he doesn't need it. At least maybe a flesh and blood one does, but not the king of all kings. But we do it to know who it is. In the middle blessings, we're like a servant who presents petitions. And in the final three blessings, what we're supposed to feel like is like a servant whose wishes have been granted. And, and we're taking leave of our master. But if we look at these last three blessings, which begin with Ritzay, right? And I'm just going to read it quickly. Um, I, I mean, I'd love to read it in Hebrew and in English, but I'll just paraphrase it myself. If I don't understand the Hebrew, I'll look over there. So we're saying, Ritzay Hashem Elokeinu, be favorable Hashem our God, the Amcha Yisrael, with your people Israel and with their prayer, right? So we finished our prayer and we're asking God to accept it. We're asking God to like it, right? To be pleased with it. The hashed et avoda, and return the avoda. The avoda, which we're referring to, is the avoda of the Beit Hamikdash, right? Which included sacrifices. Now, originally, sacrifices was prayer. You know, the whole ritual of bringing our sacrifices to the temple, there was no such thing as prayer. It was just spontaneous prayer if you wanted to talk to God. What prayer came to do was to replace the fact that we no longer had sacrifices. Okay, and that's why prayer is called avodah, which usually means work service, which it means implies korbano, sacrifices. Avodat shibaleid. Now we're doing work of the heart. We no longer have the temple. We no longer have the sacrifices. We're going to talk a little bit about what that was all about. Very difficult for us in our day to understand it. But we're also saying to Hashem, return that avoda, the dvir beitecha, to the holy of holies, right to the temple, the ishe Yisrael, and the fire offerings, okay? But we're also referring to the fire that we feel when we pray to Hashem with real kavana, with our whole beings, okay? We want you to accept the fire. We no longer have the fire of the korbano, but the fire of our hearts, of our passions, should be accepted. Utefilatam, and their prayer, right? The prayer of your people. Please accept it, be'ahaba, with love. Tikabel b'ratzon, you should receive it. Okay, and utehila ratzon tamid, and you should, you know, want it always. Avodat Yisrael Amecha, the service of your people, it should always be favorable to you. It should be, you know, like they talk about the uh, korbanot as being a pleasing scent to Hashem, an aroma that he enjoys, right? So this is the way we want Hashem to feel about what the prayers that we've just prayed. And then this prayer ends with the techazena einenu b'shuvcha l'tzion barachamim. Our eyes should be able to witness, to see the return of, your, of you to Zion, right? To Zion in compassion, with compassion. Baruch atah Hashem, you Hashem, and the source of all blessing. Hamachazir shechina tol l'tzion. Your shechina, right? The divine presence should return to Tzion. And again, of course, we're talking about 
accept our prayers, but ideally, like all of the prayers that we pray during our request section, we want to be back in Yerushalayim, we want to be back in our land, we want the third temple to be revealed, we want Mashiach to come, we want to be able to again bring korbanot, right, to the Beit HaMikdash. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what these korbano are. Okay, so just, uh, this is a, a, you know, Corbano 101 we're going to do now, okay? A little bit about just the philosophy behind what is a korban, okay? First of all, the word korban has the word karov in it, which means to draw close. The purpose of korbano to bringing sacrifices, much like the purpose of prayer or exactly like the purpose of prayer, is to draw closer to Hashem, is to feel this incredible connection. And whatever connection we feel through prayer, obviously, when we had korbanot in a temple, it was much greater. It was more, it was even more intense and profound. And what's the idea? So the idea of bringing korban is that inside every human being is an animal. It's called the Yetzirah. We have a wild beast inside of us, right? The sages say that a human being, when he comes into the world, is like a a wild animal. He needs to be trained, right? That's what he has parents for, hopefully, who have trained their own Yetzirah, hopefully, right? So he needs to be trained. So the idea of bringing a korban is saying, I'm surrendering my animalistic desire, right? Many of the korbanot that we brought were because of sin. Now, sins only happen when our Yetzirah, which is rooted in our animalistic drives, supersede our Yetzir Tov. So we would bring this animal to, 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 to um, represent the animal within us. And we basically are saying that what happens when we surrender to the Yetzirah is we basically gave up our super superb mind, which is supposed to lead us to impulse, to, in, you know, to impulse, which animals are impulse, their instinct. And we rejected Hashem. And the truth is, in a world of complete din, we don't deserve to live anymore, right? In a world where God says, or the king says, off with your head, you defied my laws, you defied my decrees, that's it, death, that's the way it was. But the merciful God allows us to bring this korban and offer it life up instead of our own. And so what do we do? It's a very uh, tactile thing that they had to do. They literally had to bring this live animal. The sinner had to uh, pick an animal, bring it to the temple, put its hands on the head of the animal and declare, my intellect failed to control my impulse. I behaved like a senseless beast, not a human being made in the godly image. And now I'm gonna slaughter this animal to symbolize that in the future, I will overcome and slay the animal which attacks me from within. Now, the blood of the korban represented sensuality and fiery passion. 
And the person basically say, saying, now I'm going to use this blood in the proper service, right? I'm going to inflame my passions towards doing mitzvot, towards dovening, you know, having connection to you. I'm going to use it in service of the Yetzer Tov and employ my higher self. Okay, now many of the korbanot that we brought were not even related to sin. And my husband was saying that's actually uh, was something unique to Judaism. Number one, that we brought korbanot in Thanksgiving. We brought a korban called the shlamim, which was that some of it went, we burned, but a lot of it we ate. And, 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 and the kohanim ate and you were able to eat certain korbanot. And the idea was not like people would just, you know, burn up their children and give a gift to the gods. But the Jewish idea was that there's a partnership here that we're, we and the God, you know, we and our God are connected. We're partners. We're working together in this. So the fact that we ate from the korbano was something completely different than what people were doing in those days. Okay. This bracha is the 17th bracha. Sorry, the last three blessings that we're, we're going to be saying now at the end of Shemona Esrei, they correspond to the first three blessings that we said at the beginning of Shemona Esrei. The blessings called Avot. And this bracha in particular that's talking about, you know, korbanot and God accepting our prayers is that the same way that Abraham offered Yitzchak up as a sacrifice, and God told him, of course, no, I don't want human sacrifice, and stopped it, but wanted to see if Abraham would obey. So too, when we say this prayer, we're like Abraham. We're saying that the sacrifice is the korbanot that we should bring, you know, should be accepted. Okay, this is also called the, it's the 17th bracha, and the number 17 corresponds to the word tov which means good. And the idea here is even though we don't have our temple, which is the true tov and the completed tov, we, have, we at least have the goodness of our prayers that we can offer up to Hashem. And the fire, like I said, that used to be connected to the offerings now refers to the fiery words of prayer. And we hope that Hashem accepts our tefillah that we're praying, our Shemona Esrei, the same way that he once accepted our sacrifices. And they say that in this prayer, when you're saying it, you should actually picture yourself willing to give up your life for Hashem the way that Yitzchak did. Now, obviously, interestingly, we are in the last day of Gevura. Yitzchak represents the Mida of Gevura, Right. In many ways, the Akedah was Avraham's test, you know, not Yitzchak's, because Yitzchak was an Ish Gevura. For him to allow himself to be tied to the altar and to be a Korban to Hashem was not a, listen, it was still a stretch, but it, it personified who he was. He was disciplined. You know, he was able to control his emotions, as opposed to Avraham, who was all Chesed. Right, so this was a major test for Abraham to be able to do something like this. But the point is, is that we say every day in Shema, the whole nafshecha, and we're really supposed to think when we say that that I'd be willing to give up my life for God. And as we know throughout Jewish history, how many, how many Jews 
were able to fulfill that mitzvah. And I remember Rebetzin Heller saying, and they were not Talmidei Chachamim necessarily. They were the simplest Jews. But we have the DNA from Yitzchak, the spiritual DNA, that we have it within us. Every Jew has it within us to be able to give up our life, right? As, as, I, as you know, I've said, you know, we just celebrated Yom HaShoah. As one Nazi said who worked at the crematoriums, I knew that every Jew was dead when I heard the last Shema because that's how they would die with the words Bechol Nafshecha, knowing that they were going to a very, very high place. Anybody who dies Al-Kiddush Hashem, regardless of your level of religiosity, regardless of whether you ate pig yesterday, that is considered to be an incredibly high type of death to die for the Jewish people and to die because you're a Jew. Okay, so we said that. Okay, when the Jews sinned at the golden calf, right, which is coming up soon in Parshas, and it's part of, you know, what we're thinking about as we're heading towards Shavuos, they distanced themselves from God, and they basically banished God. They pushed God away. But Hashem returns when we build a Mishkan. They built a Mishkan after that. And we say, so that Shechanti Besocham, that he could dwell in them. It should, should have said dwell in it, right? The Shechina was going to dwell in the Mishkan. He was going to be close to them again. But the play on the word is that the Shechina will dwell in each Jew according to how much room they make for Hashem. The more we make ourselves into a vessel, and that's the whole point of this time period, as we go towards Shavuos, we're working on our midot, because in a place where there's bad midot, Hashem can't rest. The more we purify ourselves, the more we work on our character development, right? Torah can only rest in a place that of derech eretz, of menschlichkeit, of goodkeit. So we're trying to make each one of us into a mishkan, into a place where Hashem can rest. Okay, now just quickly, you see the Ya'alevi Yavo prayer in between here, right? So just, we know that this prayer, for those of you who don't know, we add this prayer on Rosh Chodesh, we add it on Pesach, on Sukkot, on the days in between, uh, Pesach and, and uh, the beginning days and the end days on Cholamoid. And the reason that it's here is because on those days, we always brought extra sacrifices. And this prayer is all about asking God to remember us, right? Oh God and God of our forefathers, may their rise, come, reach, be noted, be favored, be heard, be considered and be remembered. The remembrance and consideration of ourselves, remember our forefathers, remember Mashiach, remember Jerusalem, remember the city of your holiness, remember all of the Jewish people, and may it be a remembrance for good, for kindness, etc. So we're, 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 we, we feel when we're saying this prayer that we're like an army that is being inspected by the king, every yontav. And there's actually eight verbs that are used in this prayer to add, of asking God to remember us. And the eight represents the seven heavens 
and Hashem being above the seventh heaven, right? We have a prayer in English, you know, I mean, sir, we have a saying in English, I was in seventh heaven. Well, it comes from Judaism, right? That there's an idea that there are seven heavens and God sits above. And then there's also the idea that between each heaven, there's a space, which is why the number 15 also connotes the heights. God sits on the 15th between all of the seven plus seven. Okay, so each heaven has a name. We're not going to go into it, but the first heaven is the Rakia, which is the one that we see from our planet, the sun, moon, and the stars. The next one is called the Shechakim, which is where the man that they ate in the desert, the manna descended from. The next one is called Ma'on. This is where the angels sing Shira here. So just to give you an idea of what's going on up there and more and more and more. So, you know, what we see is not just what we get. There's much more going on. And of course, our behavior down here, which is the most incredible part of Judaism, actually, you know, affects all of the heavens. And we send up whatever good we do, and unfortunately, negative we do. And there is a uh, reaction, if you like. And then what comes, you know, what goes up must come down. <laughs> spinning wheel, spinning round. We send it up and it comes back to us. Interestingly, on Shabbos, by the way, if you look at the Musaf prayer, Tikanta Shabbat Ratzita Karbonoteha, you'll notice that the alphabet is backwards. Every word, taf, kuf, reish, shin, because the idea is that on Shabbat, we're not doing. So instead of us doing, doing, doing and sending it up and coming back, the flow is different. It's backwards. Hashem is just sending down on Shabbat the bracha. And we're just right? Receiving. We're receiving it. We're making ourselves into vessels to receive the bracha that sustains us the entire week that we live off of during the entire week. The Shabbat is the day where the cup is filled. Okay. Um, how am I doing? I guess we're going to have to do one more class on Shron next week. Okay. Baruch Hashem. All right because I talked about my brother a lot, so, okay. So let's start, we're going to the Mudim prayer. Mudim anach nulach. Okay, everybody bows at that prayer. And we bow down, right? And we're saying basically, we thank you. She'atahu Hashem alokeinu velokei avoteinu l'alam ve'ed, that you are the, our, our, our God and the God of our fathers forever. You're the rock of our lives. You save us from all kinds of things. That's what you've been for us. That's you from one generation to the other. And therefore, we want to thank you. And we want to talk about, right? We want to praise you and talk about all the things that you've done for us. In our lives. Right, Hamisurim biyadecha. Well, relate your praise for our lives, which are committed to your power. Okay, Okay, 
and, and for our souls that you give us, right, that, that are entrusted by you to us, and all the good that you do, at every moment, right, every moment, every time we take a breath, at the end of that breath, when we release our breath, I did a little bit of meditation with Hashi Skobak. It was amazing because you really become aware that at the end of that breath that you take, if you really focus on your out breath and you really let it out completely, it's almost like when you take that in breath again, you realize that you're symbiotically connected to the creator as if you're breathing out and he's breathing that breath back into you the same way he did with the first human being. You know, that he breathed into Adam and he became a living being. And if we let the breath out and we don't take an inward breath, we realize there's a place of almost panic there until we get that breath. Anyway, the point is, is that every moment and every time you are sustaining us, you are giving to us. And we're grateful for that. The Al Nisefa, right? All the miracles that you do for us every single day, the Al Niflotecha and your wonders and the good that you do morning, night, and air, night, morning, and afternoon. And this goodness, it never ends. It just, it's just, it's, it's, it's like human beings can do good for you, but there's a bottom, there's a place where they can't do anymore. I can't. That's enough. I can't do it anymore, right? But means Hashem's mercy, Hashem's ability to give to us never ends. It's, it's, it's bottomless. And your compassion that, that fuels the kindness that you do for us also is never ending. We should put our hope in you forever because where else should we put our hope and our trust if not in you? Because you are behind everything, every breath that we take, if we would live in reality and not live in illusion, which is a constant struggle as a human being, we would know this. So this blessing of thanksgiving follows the blessing of the temple service, the Ritze that we just said, because service and thanks are identical. What does that mean? The implication is, is that it's unacceptable to thank Hashem to be cognizant of everything that he does for you without feeling any obligation towards him. It doesn't make any sense to say thank you and yet feel like there's no relationship, there's no commitment, there's no obligation. So service and thanks should really be identical. So in the world of the future, by the way, all sacrifices will be unnecessary. The only sacrifice that, we'll, well, that we will bring is the korban toda, the thanksgiving one, the one that says to God, thank you. That one will remain. And this is interesting. It says all prayers will become obsolete except for the prayers of thanksgiving because we won't have any needs. Our needs will be provided for us. We will have everything we need, right? There's all kinds of, just like in the desert, how the Jews had everything they needed. They had food every day. They had clothing. They did not have to take care of anything material. That is what they say the future world will be like. There will be so much prosperity and there will be enough for everybody. 
And we as Jews will be able to devote ourselves like the Jews did in the desert to the service of God, to deepening our wisdom, to being the teachers of humanity about Torah. And we won't have to worry about our physical needs. So we won't have any korban, it says, except for todah. Just a side point here. There was a Shaila asked about Thanksgiving, the holiday of Thanksgiving, whether or not it's a Jewish holiday, right? Of course, there are some Jews, especially in the States, it's a very big deal. You know, there are many Jews who celebrate it from the frumest of the frum, you know, to, you know, and then there are people who say, no, why should I celebrate Thanksgiving? I'm a Jew. I'm thanking God every moment of my life. Thanksgiving is every day. So it's interesting, Rav Moshe Feinstein said you don't need to, to celebrate Thanksgiving. I don't know if he said it's us, or, but he said, you know, you don't need to. You're a Jew. You're being thankful all the time. And, and Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Yosef Do Soloveitchik did celebrate it. Okay. So this bracha, Modi Manach is the 18th bracha. And the rabbis tell us, the sages tell us that we take 18 breaths a minute. So you can test that out after the class, okay? <laughs> um, 18 obviously stands for life, Hi. And the purpose of life, if anybody asks you, what is the purpose of life? You know, I always say to myself, I need to have a nice succinct answer for that. The purpose of life is to be, is to be cognizant of Hashem's kindnesses to be thankful for all God gives you and to thank him by devoting your life to his service. The greatest act that a child can do for a parent is not just to say thank you, but to say, mom, what can I do for you? How can I help you today? What do you need me to do? Are there any words sweeter to the ears of a parent <laughs> than that? You know, I always joke that my youngest son, I don't know, I always, we always, it's one of the family stories, my youngest child, I asked him something and he said, whatever you want, Ima. And I was like in total shock. I almost fell down. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, say that again. Nobody's ever said that to me before, <laughs> you know? But if you have enough kids, hopefully you get one like that, right? But that's the idea. We're saying to Hashem, whatever you want, whatever you want. Why? Because it's so clear that you love me and that you shower me. And I want to do, I want to do for you. So what gets in the way of us being thankful? Why do we have such a hard time with it? So we know the answer already. First of all, we always focus on what we're missing. Right? The cup is half full. There are those who mourn that roses have thorns and those who rejoice that thorns have roses. We're always noticing what we're missing. And the root of this attitude is arrogance. I deserve more. I deserve better. I want it now. I can't wait. 
Whereas humble means being content with your lot. I just read another idea that in the word simcha, happiness, the three last letters spell macha, mem, chet, hey. It means to erase. Right? We're supposed to erase the memory of Amalek. Macha means to erase, which is basically the idea that one of the roots or the way to get to a place of simcha is to erase your ego, erase that part of you that says it's not good enough. Erase yourself, nullify yourself. Because humble means being content with your lot. So Rav Nassim Finkel, who was the altar of Slobodka said, make a daily practice of viewing the world as if you just entered it. Pretend you're a newborn baby. I always used to feel that way after I had a baby. You know, by the time you got out of the hospital and you finally got out of bed and you finally got back into the world and maybe, you know, you were going out for a walk and leaning on your stroller to be able to walk. You know, it's all, it, I, I used to feel like, my gosh, like I feel like my infant, you know, like, where have I been? Wow. You know, wow. And it's almost like you re-enter the world together with your baby. You know, it's interesting. So the word, we should enter the world, you know, the sight, the hearing, the touch, the taste, the smell with, with this incredible newness of the, in the gifts that we can enjoy. There's 86 words in this prayer, which correspond to the word Elohim, which is God as he manifests himself in this world through nature, through his power. And the word hateva, which means nature. So we have to bless God. We have to be aware all the time if we want to reach a place of simcha and hakarat hatov of the wonders of nature that he creates. I mean, this time of year now, I, I don't know about you, but obviously hope springs eternal in the human breast and spring is just all about that. You know, when you see the leaves and all the trees budding and you see the newness of the world again, and we've been so much more in touch with nature because of this pandemic, perhaps, you know, as I said to this woman, you know, with everything that's going on, that doesn't, nobody knows what's up and what's down. One thing we could be certain of is that winter turns to spring and spring turns to summer. And that keeps going without, without us, it marches on, Right even as we live in this place of turmoil, obviously, you know, the nature around us represents the fact that God is running the world. And even what the things we don't understand, there's a purpose and a plan and there's a cycle that is going to be played out. Okay, I'm gonna finish in one minute. I just wanna say one more idea. We bow at the beginning of Modim, right? Everybody knows we bow. Now at the beginning of and we bow again at the end of the prayer, right? Which ends with really Baruch Hashem Hatov Shimcha Ulechana Elahodot, right? If you go all the way to the end of that prayer before Sim Shalom, we bow again there. 
So the idea of bowing again, obviously, is the servant to the master, the humility, the recognition that I have nothing without you, that everything that I have is because you give it to me. And it says, in the Gemara, it says, whoever does not bow during Modim will have a crooked spine. Now, obviously, this is not necessarily physically, but it's the idea that if you don't exercise that muscle of gratitude, of being grateful to God, to other people, etc., you you won't be you won't you'll be crooked. You'll see life crookedly, imbalanced, if you want. You won't be able to enjoy because of that crooked spine. But it will be because of your own inability to admit, to acknowledge, to really develop this gratitude, which again is the cornerstone. If we don't bow, we're like the snake. The rabbis go on. Why the snake? Why the nachash? Because it's di- when, you, when it's difficult for you to submit to God and to admit that all your blessings are because of God's blessing, right? You're like the snake in the garden who wasn't content with the way things were, right? He desired Chava. He was the Yetzir Hara. It wasn't good enough. And he brought that out in both Adam and Chava. Okay, all right, I'll just finish this last point here. Okay, so Modim, this prayer again, corresponds to Yitzchak, who showed the ultimate gratitude to Hashem by offering himself as a korban. And this prayer, last idea, this prayer called Modim was composed when King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, dedicated the first temple. The gates of the temple door, there's a whole story in the Gemara that the gates of the temple door would not open until Shlomo recited 24 prayers of pleading. And even after that, they would still not open. They finally opened only when he invoked the memory of his father, David, David HaMelech. And why, what was the significance of this? Hashem was showing that he had completely forgiven David's sin with Bathsheba, who was Shlomo's mother. That's a whole story, right? That, right? David married this woman, Bathsheba. He desired her. She already had a husband. He sent that husband off to war, whatever, basically getting him out of the picture. And there's a whole question about the sin in David's life was always in front of him. He was always doing tshuva for it. Even though, you know, the sin was something, the story also goes into that, you know, the question of whether it was even sinful is another story. But for his level, it, it was considered one. So this last bracha that we say in Modi, sh- the, the doors opened and we're told that the angels recited this bracha, the Hashem, uh, 
you Hashem are the source of all blessing. Um, the, you know, your name is good and you only, uh, and it's fitting to give thanks to you. So the angels recited this blessing when they saw the doors of the temple open. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll continue, God willing, next week. We're going to finish with Modim, and we're going to go to the last one, Elokai Nitzur, where we talk about God helping us keep our mouth shut and only saying good things. <laughs> because the idea is at the end of finishing our prayer, we're now going back out into the world. So we want to keep protection, protection, you know, for ourselves and also in terms of other people, not necessarily always being so nice. So we're going to talk about in that for how how we deal with all of that. Anyway, thank you so much. And thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Deborah. Beautiful. Yes, my brother, Baruch Hashem, my brother, really, he was really an incredible person. He was a very special guy. Um, thank you so much for sharing him with us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening. I feel like you're part of the family. I'll tell you a story that I sent out to the family. My brother was very close with a lot of rabbis, Rabbi Shimon Appesdorf, who used to live in Toronto. He wrote many, many books. And my brother's name was always in the front of the book as a thanks from Rabbi Shimon, because my brother had incredible typing skills. I know, because my bedroom was next to his, and he had an electric typewriter that would go until three in the morning, okay? And he could type over a hundred words a minute. And even as kids, Michael would teach us whatever he knew. So he literally had desks in his bedroom, and we had to sit in these desks. We were taught math and stuff before we even went to school from him. And he used to literally write up report cards okay which i would usually be running after him down the stairs and trying to grab out of his hand because i know i got a d in conduct <laughs> and uh I, I, the joke whatever anyway the point is, is um, so michael was an incredible typer and he used to in the old days type out all of rabbi shimon's books and of course he went there for shabbos and he loved shimon and he would call him every week he had people he called every single week including our next door neighbor from saint Catharines, you know my best friend who i grew up with i knew what they were doing my whole life because of him um he was a connector he loved people he had people he called People knew that something happened to him. Even right after Shabbos, he would call this woman, Sheila Grubner, every single Shabbos. I would say, Michael, will you let her like just relax? She just, we just went out of Shabbos. She told me she knew what something was wrong. She didn't get the call. So anyway, the point is, is this Rabbi Shimon Apisdorf, I hope I'm not recording. No, this Rabbi Shimon Apisdorf moved with his family to um, Israel. And we, my, my husband and I were going to Israel and my brother, who's again, very persistent and likes to repeat himself, told me over and over again, Deb, when you go to Israel, look up Shimon, look up Shimon, look up Shimon, look up Shimon. You have to call Shimon. You better call Shimon. Shimon would really love to hear from you. You need to call Shimon, call Shimon, right? Anyway, finally, I said to him, listen, Mike, I'm probably not going to call Shimon. And I, I'm telling you, I have my own friends, okay? I have my own friends. I have my own people that I need to see. I'm not, I might not call Shimon, okay? Enough already. Okay. Anyway, the point is, 
He didn't always bring out my good signs. Um, <laughs> it was a test, always. I needed it because, as you know, my father wanted to turn me inside out. Um, <laughs> Javi likes that one. Uh, anyway, so we go to Israel. We're staying in a hotel somewhere. And there's this huge snowstorm on Shabbos. And part of our plans in Israel is that we're invited to a bar mitzvah. Anyway, it I think it was a Thursday morning. It was like the, the city was completely immobilized. You couldn't go anywhere. You know what a snowstorm does in Israel. And we didn't know whether the bar mitzvah was on or off. It was supposed to be at the Kotel. And we tried to call the people who were having the bar mitzvah and we couldn't get through to them. Even the lines were down, okay? So my husband being his personality, he said, I was invited to this bar mitzvah and I'm going because they might be there. And I said, well, good luck to you. You know, no boots, no winter coat. I'm not going. Okay. See ya. Okay. Anyway, he goes to the hotel and of course I'm right. And they're not there, but he comes back. When he comes back, I say, so what happened? He said, well, they weren't there. There was just a small group of men there who were dovening. And the first guy I see is Shimon door. <laughs> and Shimon comes running over to me and we took a selfie with each other and we sent it to Michael. So I said, not only does Michael have connections, but like right there at the Kotel, and Shimon had told my husband that every day he comes to the Kotel since he made Aliyah, he comes to the same minion at the same time. He doesn't care if it's snowing. He doesn't care if it's hailing. That's what he does. So it's only because of that that we actually saw Shimon. My brother was thrilled. I asked my husband to show us where that picture is because I wanted to see it. Anyway, thank you so much, Deborah. Okay, take care. We should all have strength. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on and being part of my family. Thank you. Thank you for being part of on Tuesday, a new series for those of you who want to join me. Uh, it's a new series for Project Inspire. I'm not sure what I'm teaching yet, but whatever. <laughs> what time is it? Uh, that one's at 10. Okay. And then, of course, Wednesday will continue, Mirz Hashem. Okay. Okay. Right. Thank Amazing. you. Thank Have you. a great week. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you.